Welcome to this podcast for the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality, the mission of which is to connect the practical truths of economics with the perennial truths of ethics and building a sustained moral and accessible defense of free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and stewardship. I'm David Bowes, your host. In this podcast, we'll explore issues raised in the book, Indivisible, Restoring Faith, Family, and Freedom Before It's Too Late, written by James Robeson and Ph.D. Director and Senior Fellow of the Center, Jay Richards. I'll talk with Dr. Richards about the difference between culture and state and why principled voters should recognize and value incremental gains. One of the frequent themes of your book is the difference between culture and politics, culture and the state. What's the difference between culture and the state, and why is culture arguably more important? Well, culture is is basically sort of everything that you can think of. If you think of the water that fish swim in, that's what our culture is like. So it's all of our institutions. It includes, of course, the family and marriage, but it includes our churches. It includes our voluntary organizations. It includes our religious beliefs and our history and all those kinds of things. Things. If you just think about it that way, it's clear that our culture precedes our politics. I mean, the political ideas that our founders had, they drew from somewhere. They didn't just sort of make this stuff up on the fly. They drew on the greatest perennial themes of the Western tradition, especially the, the Roman history, uh, Greek history, and the Judeo-Christian tradition and history. All those threads sort of came together in our political ideals. So if you just sort of think about it, you realize that the culture ultimately precedes seeds politics. And so if you want to restore society, it's not enough just to kind of tweak some things politically, get the right kind of people in office. The people that are in office and the political ideas we have are themselves a function of culture. And so we would argue that culture precedes politics and is more important than politics. On the other hand, it's important to realize that politics also affects our culture. It's like there's this feedback. So for instance, prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973, most states of the Union had certain kinds of restriction on abortion. But once the Supreme Court overturned those, what happens in the law has a teaching function in the culture. And so if something is made legal by the federal government, that implicitly teaches people that it's probably not immoral. It's the reason, for instance, since if you have a law against theft, we have laws against theft because we believe theft is wrong, but the fact that we have laws against it also teaches people that it's wrong. And so there's this feedback between culture and politics. So it's important to realize that while culture is prior, politics, good and bad, has a cultural impact. And this people often forget this. I have a lot of people that say, look, don't worry so much about what happens in Washington and about politics. Just focus on the culture. I think this is really ultimately naive because cultures can be dictated by certain types of politics. I mean, the example we use in the book, of course, is North and South Korea. South Korea is free. It has a free economy. It's a democracy. Christianity is the largest of the religions. North Korea has the same history, the same ethnicity. There's almost no Christians there, and it's utterly unfree in terms of economics. The only difference is that North Korea has a communist political system, and South Korea has a free market economic and political system. And so while culture is prior, we should never lose sight of the fact that our politics itself can reflect and affect our culture. How do conservatives and Christians get together and start influencing culture? 
Well, politics itself is one way in which, of course, we can influence culture, and that's where we focus primarily on the book. I mean, in the long run, we have to be able to create our own culture. That means that conservatives and Christians have to be high achievers in in art and in music and in literature and philanthropy and business, all those things. We need to be high achievers so that we ourselves can be a part of those elite networks and that actually influence the culture. But I think it's important to realize that in a democracy like ours, the United States is a, both a republic and a democracy, if a large enough percentage of the population is actually acting in concert, we can have an effect on the culture. Let's use the example of abortion. Okay, Roe v. Wade is the perfect example of how seven men can dictate the law for a country that had at the time 250 million people in it. So isn't that an example in which just a few elites can dictate everything? Well, in a sense, but imagine this. What if 70% of the American population was pro-life and consistently voted pro-life over time, whether it was a representative or a mayor or a senator? They used pro-life issue as one of their sort of guiding principles. Well, what that would mean is that over time, the Congress, the White House, all the sort of positions of government would be overwhelmingly filled with pro-life people. And so what that means is that, yeah, there might be an elite culture, say, at Yale Law School of people that are very pro-choice, but they're not going to get appointed to the Supreme Court because the executive and the legislative branches of government are overwhelmingly pro-life. Part of the problem is that even conservatives and Christians who may make up the majority of the population don't tend to act in concert. The truth of the matter is, if you look historically at the activities of Christians in the public square, we've often been fighting each other. And while we've been doing that, we argue that secularism and the secular elites, they're marching in lockstep. They're working together. So even the sort of left-wing unions are working together with the left-wing environmental groups, even though they don't seem to have much in common. On the other hand, Catholics and evangelicals have often fought with each other so that we don't even have one counterculture that's working together. We have this sort of fragmented counterculture in which we tend to be sniping at each other. So we think what we need to do is figure out what are those core principles on which we agree and that we share and defend those in the public square. And we think if we do that, there are enough of us, if we think clearly and strategically, that we can actually have an effect. You also point out in the book, Indivisible, that there's a small number of people can be in certain places and have greater cultural leverage than great numbers of people in other places. That's right. And the Supreme Court, of course, is the best example of that. Though ultimately, those who are on the Supreme Court are determined politically. It's still a very long process. And the truth of the matter is that most of the men and women that would be eligible to be on the Supreme Court are themselves elites. They're extremely well-educated. They're intelligent. They're they're well-connected. And so if the elite culture in general is hostile to conservative ideas, then it's very likely that those elite core of people are going to be overwhelmingly occupied by people that are on the other side of these cultural questions. It's the same thing in science. Poll just general scientists, they more or less reflect the average American population. But these elite institutions, the National Academies of Science or those who control the funding for science, tend overwhelmingly to be on the left politically and also to be secularist. And so the truth of the matter is we'd like to believe that every individual human person has an equal effect on the culture. But the truth of the matter is, is that this small core of elite and the institutions that they represent and that overlap with each other, they tend to control the cultural agenda. So if we want to change the culture, we can't ignore the role of elites, I think, in doing that. 
One of the things you pointed out is how important politics is to culture. So a lot of Christians and conservatives, I'll hear them say something along the, along the lines of, I can't vote for candidate X because that candidate's not sticking to my principles, and therefore they'll step out, even though neither of the two candidates left are acceptable to them. How should a candidate be measured, and how should conservatives and people of faith think about the principle issue when voting in a self-governing society? It's often said that politics is the art of the possible, and so it's important that we not make the perfect the enemy of the good. In a democracy, almost every alternative is going to be a compromise of competing ideas. And so what we want to do is we want to think in a principled way, what are those principles? And we talk about the principles of faith, family, and freedom in the book. But then we also have to look at how those things are implemented in terms of policy. And so we're almost always going to be dealing with lesser than and more than when we're dealing with actual candidates. And so it's a devastating mistake that conservatives make, say, okay, if the candidates available don't represent my absolute ideal, I'm going to drop out. If you notice, the left doesn't do that. Conservatives do this, we'll lose one election, and then they'll say, oh, well, we'll drop out, let's just sort of mind our own business. The left is very smart. They chip away slowly but surely. They know that incremental change over time gives rise to radical cultural change. Think about how the gay marriage agenda has done this over time, and it's really slowly changing public perception of that issue. Conservatives have to learn to do the same thing, that incrementalism is our friend. If we can make incremental change in the right direction, add that up over time, and we've changed the culture. And so we can't look at these things in the short run so that if we have one bad election or one cycle in which we don't have our ideal candidate, all is lost. There's this kind of apocalyptic tendency among conservatives that I think is very self-defeating, and we've got to avoid it at all costs. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. If you'd like more information about the center, please go to discovery.org and click on the Center for Wealth, Poverty, and Morality link. This podcast is copyright 2012, the Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. Discovery Institute's new Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality is home to some of the nation's leading defenders of free enterprise. They include renowned writer and futurist George Gilder, award-winning author Jay Richards, and syndicated radio personality Michael Medved. You are invited to join us as we kick off Discovery Institute's new Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality at a special reception to be held Tuesday, March 13, 6 p.m. at the Rainier Square Conference Center, located at 1301 Fifth Avenue in downtown Seattle. Come meet these scholars, and learn more about the activities of the Center in the coming year. For more information on this event, please visit www.discovery.org. We hope to see you there.